Welcome to the Gamble Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Lisandro Perez. He's a Cuban-American and a professor in the Department of Latin American and Latinx Studies at John Jay College. And he's written a new book. It's a wide-sweeping history of Cuba and his own family, titled The House on G Street, A Cuban Family Saga. Professor Perez, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we really appreciate you making the time. So, really interesting looking book. Let me let me just start with a basic question. Why did you want to write this book now, uh, in this stage of your life and, and where your memories of your family are at this point? Well, I've always thought about writing this book for, for decades in many ways. And I thought this would be a good time before uh, I won't be able to. In other words, I'm getting, you know, I'm now in my seventh decade, essentially. And if I didn't write it now, I uh, wasn't ever, ever going to write it. But it's a book that essentially I've been working on it uh, all my life, if you will, because uh, it brings together a lot of family anecdotes that I uh, that I learned as a child. I was always asking my my uh, my ancestors, my grandfather, uh, my uh, grandmother and others uh, about the family. And so I always had an interest in that. And I've retained those and refreshed that. And then I've been a researcher as a, you know, as an academic, I've been a researcher. And I've been researching this for a long time. And, and, and those grandparents of mine, the two sets of grandparents now have about 80 living descendants. And I thought it was about time that that I put this down on paper. Uh, and, but at the same time, give it context. So it's not just, it's not just a family history. If you will, it's a, it's a family history embedded in Cuban history, or maybe the other way around. It's a, it's a, uh, Cuban history embedded in a family story. (laughs) Well, so tell me a little bit about that family. My understanding from what I've been able to um, read so far is that, um, your family, had some privilege. Uh, it 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 uh, it had some prestige. You 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 grew up, I think, at least early on in privilege. Uh, tell us about your upbringing. Yes, I. One of the things that I deal with very early in the book uh, is the fact that the 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 book has a certain elite focus. That is, um, uh, my uh, mother's family was uh, had been in Cuba since the, or the early nineteenth century, and uh, and members of that family became rather prominent in the Cuban political and social life. My father's family uh, was less prominent, but uh, my grandfather made a lot of money exporting tobacco. He was an orphan boy from central Cuba. So these are two different families that I descend from, but they were both emblematic, really, of the course of Cuban history. And one of the things that I wanted to do was contrast the experience of my mother's family and my father's family in a way that would bring out uh, many things about Cuban history, starting in the early 19th century and moving forward. Uh, the book is therefore, and I give free reign, and I'm unapologetic about the elite of focus, because essentially it's about a world that no longer exists. That is, that is a world that was wiped out, if you will, by the revolution uh, as it restructured, essentially, Cuban society. The book is not about the Cuban Revolution. The the book is really about what led to it. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you was, do you know whether your family during the period leading up to the revolution 
had a had a clear sense that there was this level of deep dissatisfaction inside Cuba, because obviously this, you know, it wasn't only a top-down kind of thing. There was a grassroots element to it. So was your family aware of that? Well, I was aware of it. In other words, okay. part of what I have towards the end of the book uh, is that it, I come in essentially with what you might call as memoir. That is, I come in with my memory mm -hmm. because uh, I'll now divulge that I was born in 1949, which <laughs> means that, that in 1956, 57, when things really start heating up, I'm, I have a memory. Uh, that is, I have a memory of that time and I have memory of what happened. And I was, I think, very early aware of what was going on around me. There were events that I, I talk about in the book that took place, historical events to which I was a near witness, or at least I heard the shots from afar, if you will. Um, and I do reflect on the fact that it became evident to me and certainly to my parents that the world that we knew was in many ways coming to an end. Of course, we didn't want to admit that. Part of what happened to this social class was that they left Cuba and generally around 1960, 61, with the expectation they would be returning hmm. because the United States was simply not going to allow this uh, to happen. Uh, and so I, I was very aware of it. And certainly part of what I have towards the end of the book is that awareness as, as I develop it. And how did, I wanna come back to that, that sense of the expectation of return actually, but, but let me stick with this other topic for a minute. How did then the revolution um, affect your family directly? How did it affect you financially and so on? I was, you know, there were there were a lot of families that lost quite a bit uh, economically. There were a lot of families whose members actually suffered uh, very severely, either by imprisonment uh, or even uh, uh, by execution or by dying. Uh, my family, I should say, fortunately, was not among those. Um, so that's maybe why I write this in a somewhat analytical way, in, in a way that a, a child would write it, I think, in the memoir. Uh, so we were affected, of course. My, my uh, analysis of that, which I share in the book as well, is that almost all of Cuba in Jan on January 1, 1959, including many members of my family, my father, for example, but not my uncle, uh, my father and others welcomed the revolution. The revolution was something that many Cubans had long thought uh, should happen. Uh, it, in many ways, it was a postponed revolution. Jose Marti in the 19th century called his party the Cuban Revolutionary Party. The idea was to institute social justice, institute sovereignty, and my father certainly was in favor of that. What happens in the between essentially 1959 and the middle of 1960 is that a number of measures are taken that cross a line that many people had between what were progressive ideals, right, of social justice and so forth, and what now had the kind of whiff of communism in a Cold War era. And that was, that was you know, something very, very threatening. So uh, it wasn't that my family lost property. It wasn't that in any way we were in a physical danger, per se. And I'm talking about my immediate family in physical danger. But it was the sense that Cuba was going to change in ways that were very threatening. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that uh, one of the ways that, one of the things that led to that 
understanding on the part of, say, my father especially, is when the government announced the nationalization of private schools. Because unlike, say, the confiscation of U.S. properties or a number of other radical, so-called radical measures, this was something that promised to get at the heart of family, right, and of how you educated your children. And that, for my father, was the turning point. It wasn't something that happened to us, but simply the direction the country was going in a way that was simply very, very foreboding in many ways for many, for many people. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Lissandro Perez. He's a professor at John Jay College and the author of a new historical memoir about Cuba and the Cuban-American experience titled The House on G Street. So I want to fast forward to today. You're obviously an extremely keen observer of Cuba, its history, and its present. Uh, what, in your view, is the current state of Cuba? And you can attack that however you like. Well, unfortunately, not very dynamic. In other words, um, uh, most of my work actually has been on the post-1959 Cuban immigrants. Um, and I've studied them uh, in Miami. I've, I've had a number of projects studying them, uh, the Cuban-American population. I am also keep up a great deal with what's happening in Cuba. And I think what part of what happens uh, uh, with Cuba is that it sort of becomes repetitive without ever going anywhere. It's cyclical. That is, that is if, if I may explain that, um, uh, those of us who have been observing Cuba now for half a century, or so, um, we're always on the expectation of change. That is, that things have are going to change in Cuba. They're going to change in a direction that, for example, brings better uh, living conditions, uh, a better quality of life for people in Cuba, a way in which Cuba is not, for example, um, uh, in a hostile or at least less than amicable relationship with the United States. Uh, we're always thinking that's going to happen. And we've become many ways pessimists because just when it seems like it's going to happen, for example, the opening that Obama did, mm -hmm. uh, it seems it seems like things get reversed, reversed not only by Washington but also by the Cuban government. And it almost seems like uh, both sides of this, both governments, seem intent on maintaining, in many ways, the status quo. And it's for us who would like to see a change, would like to see a lifting of the embargo, we'd like to see Cubans have more opportunities in the island, and that the government would afford them those opportunities. It's a kind of a frustrating uh, exercise, right? Because we, um, change doesn't seem to come about in any significant way. So I would say it's not a very dynamic situation. Uh, we, we seem to be stuck, and we've been stuck for decades. If I forced a bottom line question on you about the revolution and its thinking of its aftermath in the following way, does does this event do more harm than good to Cuba? That is a that is a very that's a really a difficult question because again, and I'm gonna have to answer it from my perspective because this is I always tell students I teach a course on Cuba. I've taken students to Cuba even on on uh, on courses. Uh, uh, it, it all depends on who's talking, right? Uh, I think that there are people in Cuba who are great supporters of the revolution because the revolution did a great deal for them. Uh, they, you know, 
would not have had the opportunities that otherwise they have had if Cuba had stayed, you know, in the in the status in which it, it was before the revolution. They have been able to get an education. They have been able to develop a career, all of those things. Um, at the same time, I think that the revolution has not allowed Cuba to move forward in the community of nations. Mm. And what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm most concerned about is the fact that so many of the things that that many other countries essentially take for granted, right? Uh, and I'm talking about countries uh, not of the third world so much, but a country like Cuba that that in many ways in the 1950s was really on the cusp of, of a great deal of development, even if it was unequal, that essentially a lot of that has, I think, been turned back in a material sense. So that to this day, for example, uh, uh, the internet, uh, many aspects of just daily living that we would take for for granted, the availability of of um, of resources, food and 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 gasoline and things like that, these things are for most Cubans still continue to be a hardship, and and that is regrettable. Uh, and I think it has a great deal to do with mistakes that were made, mistakes that were made by the U.S. government, mistakes that were have been and continue to be made by the Cuban government. Uh, in terms of being able to, in many ways, abandon ideology and do what is necessary to materially, materially deliver for the Cuban people. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Lissandro Perez. He's a professor in the Department of Latin American and Latinx Studies at John Jay College, and he's got a new book out on the history of Cuba and his own family, titled The House on G Street, A Cuban Family Saga. So I wanna pick up on something that you said before the break, you had talked about um, your sense of Cuba being kind of stuck in many ways. And I wanted to ask you how you see the future trajectory of the country. I'm not an expert on the country, you are, but from my limited knowledge, it, it seems to me like from a distance that the future might not be sustainable, that there might, have to be some kind of major change if the government's going to deliver in any way for its people. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that question because I I I ended the last question on the note that that the government has not materially delivered, but I think it's more than a material problem. I think I mm. think there is there is the notion that many people have lost hope in Cuba that they can actually you know, develop themselves as full human beings in terms of opportunities and so forth. And and the last economic crisis, I mean, things are really bad now economically, but the last economic crisis was when Cuba uh, lost all of the support from the so for former Soviet bloc, in fact, essentially right. as the Soviet Union disintegrated, and um, and Cuba was in many ways left alone. There was a crisis then, but at least that crisis had an explanation. And that crisis, essentially, people were able to say, okay, if this is what caused it, we can maybe crawl ourselves out of there, right? I think what happens now is that there is, there is again, an economic crisis, and there's no reason other than, for example, the perception that the government is incompetent, uh, the government does not allow for people to develop uh, themselves in terms of their um, potential for improving their lives, and that the government has no solutions beyond ideology. And that's why we're seeing record levels of emigration from Cuba right now. 
we're seeing record level, levels of immigration. People who perhaps had not considered leaving before are now leaving. So that's what in many ways most concerns me. And I think that the, I think part of what may trigger a change may be a change in U.S. policy, which I, I don't see coming. Um, but I also think that fundamentally the Cuban government has got to realize that there is a time for a redefinition of of the revolution and perhaps a new revolution that will bring about a a greater possibilities for the Cuban population to really, you know, um, develop itself. Well, you mentioned the new wave of emigration from Cuba to the United States. And obviously, one of the questions that comes up immediately in thinking about a book like this is, how how does the Cuban immigration experience bear on getting a fuller understanding of more generally the the immigration issues and challenges that the United States is facing and that are front and center in our political debates uh, at the moment. Do you, do you have any thoughts about how that maps onto it? Well, Cuban migration to the U.S. has always had this exceptional character. That is, that that it's somehow different. Uh, certainly, in the 1960s and even through to the Mariel boat crisis, you might remember the Mariel boat lift of 1980. All of that were episodes of, of migration to the United States that were in many ways exceptional. We're seeing now Cubans coming in in ways that are less exceptional. We're mm -hmm. seeing Cubans, for example, crossing the border in Mexico. Right? Um, we're seeing in many ways the regularization of Cuban migration in a way that that's similar to what had been the migration of other groups from Latin America and from other parts of the world. Um, even going back, uh, my, uh, my I have another book that is the history of Cubans in New York in the 19th century. Even then, there was this exceptionality to Cuban migration. But what has happened is that in many ways, Cubans have become part of the wave that's coming into the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, even though, again, their treatment is a bit different. It is still the case that Cubans have uh, a, a very um, somewhat privileged status in terms of migration policy. Uh, in many ways, if Cubans arrive, they are more likely to be able to stay. Uh, and it sort of teaches us that the relation, the way in which the U.S. treats immigrants does depend a bit on where they come from uh, hmm. and whether or not they come from countries that are uh, friendly to the U.S. or countries that are hostile to the U.S. This leads directly into something else I wanted to ask you about when you talked about how the exceptional aspect of Cuban immigration has diminished and now it's become kind of more like other immigrations is that it's my understanding that the Cuban American population historically has been more conservative and more Republican than a lot of other Latin groups. And, you know, where they're coming from has a big part of that and what they're escaping. Now that this immigration is changing, do you see the Cuban American population becoming more diverse, where younger Cuban Americans maybe have very little direct experience of Cuba at all. They may, they've never maybe even been there. You know, uh, I taught for many years at Florida International University in Miami, where I taught classes on Cuban history, and most of my students were, you know, second, third generation uh, Cuban Americans uh, who were teaching, who were, who were in my class uh, learning about Cuban history. And I would say to them, 
20 years ago or so, you know, when a new generation comes in uh, of leadership in the Cuban American community, there's going to be a change, you know, and they're not going to be as passionate about the Cuba issue. They're not going to hinge their elect, you know, their voting on Cuba policy or anything like that. And we're not going to see the kind of such right wing kinds of politics that we're seeing now. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> In other words, the, <laughs> the, 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 um, the, 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 what I call the exile discourse, which is a discourse that is essentially focused on the homeland and that seeks to bring about change in the homeland uh, and that tends to fashion its politics around that phenomenon of exile politics. I think that it's had a tremendous ability to sort of reproduce itself generationally. Ah. So that right now we're looking at who are the stalwarts right now politically of those policies. Well, the politicians in Miami, the politicians in Washington who are Cuban-Americans. And if you look at them, you know, Marco Rubio and Mario Diaz-Balart and, uh, and a couple of the Congress people, they're all second generation, uh, you know, born in the U.S., who have nevertheless managed to replicate that same discourse of, you know, and of anti-Castroism, of anti-communism, you know, and so forth. And it's been incredible how that has managed to essentially to survive. You know, uh, and it's still the case, and most Cubans are still a Republican. And we were surprised at a recent poll that said that a large, even a large number of the recent arrivals who became citizens, relatively recent arrivals, voted for Donald Trump, for example. Right. So right. we're seeing a community in which still that is a very, a very strong value and a very strong perspective. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is John Jay College Professor Lissandro Perez. So one of the things you write about is the immigrants coming here, I think, including members of your own family, making their lives and really not looking back in some important ways. There is this exile mentality that you talk about, but also starting over, not looking back. And that's often easier said than done. And those kinds of massive uprootings can leave, for some people, really permanent scars and deep emotional challenges. And I, I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit based on, I'm sure, the many people that you have spoken to that have gone through this experience. Well, I'm sort of an exception to what you're talking about. And I think a lot of members of my family and many people I know are sort of exceptions to that. Part of what happens with Cuban Americans, and particularly my generation, you know, I left uh, when I was 11 years old, and of course those who left whenever they were adults, is that they were constantly looking back. Uh, mm. We always thought, in many ways, we were we were going back. Uh, I became eligible to become a U.S. citizen, uh, like almost eight or nine years before I actually became a U.S. citizen. That is the notion that 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 well, you know, maybe things will change. Maybe we can go back, uh, and you don't fully define yourself as an immigrant, but you kind of define yourself as someone who is here because something happened. Right. That in many ways, in my case, for example, and I try to stress this, uh, it's something happened that was beyond my control. I had nothing to do with it. In fact, not even the decision to emigrate was mine. It was obviously my parents. I was 11 years old. Right. And so uh, I had I had a very uh, rich childhood, which I document in this book. And I, I saw myself with very strong generational ties in Cuba. So one of the things that happened is that while I I. I perceived that we were here to stay, 
I, I kind of willed myself to remember that life in Cuba, right? And, mm. and to sort of keep it alive. Uh, I'm sometimes shocked by that students in my classes here at John Jay who are Latin American immigrants and whatever uh, don't know why or when exactly their parents arrived here from wherever, from Colombia, from Honduras and whatever. I remember the exact day that I arrived. In other words, you have a memory of this, and it, it is a, a very traumatic event, uh, especially in, in our case where, again, I was I was living, I was attending school in this school I had attended all my life in Cuba from kindergarten until seventh grade, which is where I was when we left Cuba, and to be in that school, and then suddenly we're leaving, and four days later you're in another classroom in another country uh for me i must admit for many others it was harder i went to a an american school in havana so i learned uh english at the same time formally uh, that i was learning formal spanish in, in school uh and so for me it, it it wasn't that hard as it was for many others right and I'm, i make it a point of stressing that that i'm not necessarily saying that my experience was typical but i think it was very hard for many people and it was also hard for me because we had had a life uh that uh where we thought that sort of life was not going to end and if you told a cuban in 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 havana in 1957 you know on the street here's what's going to happen in the next 10 years right uh, or in the next 15 years, and you say, you know, there's going to be a break in diplomatic relations with the U.S., you know, uh, there are going to be hostile relations between the two, the world will almost go to war uh, over Cuba, or nuclear war over Cuba, and Cuba will be sending soldiers to Africa, uh, they would have thought, you know, you were crazy. So, <laughs> but those, all those things happened. So we've only got about a minute left. It's It's almost not fair of me to ask you this question at the end, you probably would have liked longer to talk about it, but you did go back to your family's house, this house on G Street, after it had been repurposed by the government. Um, if, if you can, in just a few seconds, what was that experience like for you to see it later in life? Well, it, it, first of all, everything looks smaller, as always happens when we go back to where we spent our childhood. And keep in mind that I wasn't able to go back until 1979. So that was... Uh, essentially 18 years or so, uh, that is between 1960 and 1979, 19 years. Uh, so this is where I had very fresh this memory in my mind of these places. And here I was actually able to to see them, to visit them. And that's why my trips that I went back in 1979, I took advantage of the first opportunity there was to go back. And that was the first opportunity in 1979. Uh, I was, of course, thrilled to see uh my family that was there right my cousins but it was to me a tremendous experience to just be in these places and refresh my memory as i ah. walk through them well we'll have to leave it there that was Sandro perez and again his new book is titled the house on g street the cuban family saga professor perez thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me it's been a fascinating conversation thank you i've had a great time talking to you You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, conversations in the public interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRVO Public Media. 
To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wbarbo.org slash Campbell Conversations.